0: Today I'm joined by pianist and music educator, Cindy Lamb. In addition to running a thriving piano studio in Los Angeles, Cindy has performed in concert with principals from the LA Philharmonic, LA Opera, Philadelphia Orchestra, and Royal Opera House. Cindy shares her experience of PTSD, initially triggered by a car accident at 18, which also impacted her ability to perform and heightened in 2020 by the loss of her father to a very rare prion disease. Cindy discusses her ongoing healing process, as well as the importance of reaching out and sharing one's story. She also emphasizes how we must connect with our inner child, both to foster creativity, as well as ultimately to heal trauma.
1: Hi, Cindy.
0: Hi, how
1: are you, Julia? (laughs) I'm good, how are you doing? I'm feeling pretty good today actually and I'm I'm excited to be chatting with you.
0: Um I love your Christmas tree in the background.
1: Thank you. It's it's an ode to 2020.
0: So we've been friends for some time and um I've been following, you know, on social media your posts about your experience this past year, not just the pandemic, but um you you just lost your father um to a very rare Cryon disease, and you've been quite inspirational and uplifting in what you've been sharing. Um, I would
1: love to hear what you want to tell me today. I feel like I'm, I, I'm like at the fresher end of finding healing, right? And even like identifying what kind of suffering I was feeling. You know, because when when my dad um, when we got the call. That my dad might have this, I I recognize the name, and it's just one of the scariest diseases out there, where your body basically starts, like, telling your brain to self-destruct, and you know, you you just, it's very quick, and some people only have a few months, and my my dad luckily had a year and a half. It, it was so scary, but also the implications were that oh, like these symptoms look a lot like my. The, the, what my relatives had when they passed away. And, you know, we, we've we lost several family members to similar like symptoms and it was um like a mystery, right? It was like, well, what happened? Like they just, they fell down, they kind of went crazy. They stopped recognizing their kids and then they died. And that, that's not a very descriptive, like there was no disease name. Everything was kind of just through the language barrier too. That's all we really got from our parents. I, I was looking things up, like actually in 2006, yeah, mm-hmm. like we had we had just lost our third uh, relative to this. So at that point, I thought, okay, there must be something in the family. I looked it up, and I actually, I, I came so close to identifying the family disease, where I, I contacted the National Prion Surveillance Center in Cleveland. I, I just wrote them an email, it was very, very honest, I just said, here, you know, this is what's been going on in my family, and I've been Googling all these symptoms, and th- this is what... It seems like they wrote back and they said, yeah, it kind of does sound like it. I, I forwarded the response to my entire family and I said, I figured it out. Like I solved it <laughs> yeah. and like no one was happy. Like they were like, why did you use your real name? Because like, oh, we're not going to be able to buy health insurance if people think we're like, there's something wrong with us. Okay. And, you know, like we don't appreciate this. And um, obviously, you know, I was in my early I want to say I was in my early 20s and I, I was crushed. Yeah. And so um, I kind of just let it go. Over the years, it had kind of become accepted that they ate something bad together and they had ma- mad cow disease. And that's what happened. But right. as soon as my, my dad felt like it was too rare. It has to be genetic. Right. And so there there were just so many feelings that came with that. It was like an avalanche of I'm going to lose my dad you know, we've had a complicated relationship throughout my life and I, I was really hoping that I could take I like I at that time I was in therapy. I was really trying to work out my issues with my parents and I was I was thinking that like one day soon I'll have worked through these issues and then we can have like yeah. an amazing relationship. Yeah. That was kind of a rude awakening. Like you're not gonna have that time. Right. Mm-hmm. You're gonna have maybe a couple of months and that's it. So there was that there was there was kind of not shame from within, but there was external shame about like, if this is genetic, you shouldn't tell anybody. Okay. Because like, you know, no one will want to date you no one, no one will want to marry you or have kids with you. If they think you might, you know, you might die this horrible death also. And, you know, the average onset of this disease is 50. And, you know, so I, I started hearing just I think people meant well, but it was a lot of opinions very quickly. It was, you know, a lot of people said, if I had this mutation, you know, in my family, this is what I would do. Like, I, I would devote my life to charity. And, you know, like I would move to Africa right. and just like devote my life to charity <laughs> and then set up a trust fund for when I got sick for caregivers. And like, that's how I would live my life. You know, if I were a guy and I liked you on Instagram, and I saw that you were writing about this. I don't know. I think long and hard before getting serious with somebody like, you know, like you. And so yeah. there's there a lot of, yeah. all of a sudden there was just so much to process. You start grieving almost as soon as you hear about it because it, you're, it, you're just, you have to say goodbye. Right. Now I started getting panic attacks mm-hmm. and I, I didn't understand, really, like what was happening. So it was a lot of a lot of things going on at the same time, in addition to the pandemic. <laughs> right. <laughs> I forgot about the pandemic for a second. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the first several months, I I couldn't even say like that my dad was dying publicly because right. it just felt like too much. Yeah. And it, it, it took time to to just finally say, hey, this is what I've been dealing with for the last couple of months. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, your podcast has really helped in that sense because it it helped me focus on connection
0: mm-hmm. instead
1: of judgment. Mm-hmm. And because I felt like I learned throughout the last year that shame and loneliness kind of, they feed off each other and it, it there's only bad that comes from it. There's no good. Right. It was scary to post about it at first, but... Just seeing the response I got, and right. just the overwhelming love and support. It it became kind of a good outlet for me to express myself through that.
0: It's like how Brene Brown talks about how the, the antidote to shame and stigma is sharing it with people that you
1: trust. It, you. it took a while to figure out how to judge the situation, you know, yeah. because I think everybody means well. But some are not ready to like sit with such a heavy topic, right, or some have some unres they've been through something bad and they're all they're not comfortable and i I had to learn that and really just kind of let it go and not not be mad about it, like you know what it makes them uncomfortable, and that's okay like they that's just not the person you're gonna talk to about this
0: and then with family, it's even harder because they're going through it as well
1: that that was something certainly that added to my pain in the last year was that my mom, my sister and I were all suffering and my dad, right. the four of us were suffering. And I think my dad and my mom could share some of it because she was yes. his primary caregiver. But I hadn't realized that like when everyone is suffering so much, it's really hard to be there for yeah. someone else. Yeah. So it, it ended up being like this isolation triangle you know, where I couldn't take on any any of what anyone, what anyone else was dumping on me. And they, they couldn't either. Right. So I think in this triangle, we could only reach out, but right. not into each other, which is kind of the fantasy, right? The yeah. fantasy was that, like, we're going to go through this together. We'll call each other whenever we need. We're going to be there for each other. But it that was near impossible.
0: I imagine that, you know, you're struggling and you finally get to, like, maybe an hour where you're okay. Like, the last thing you want to do is get an upsetting call from your mother or your
1: sister. That's or, exactly yeah. like that's There you go. <laughs> like You completely put your finger on it. Like, it. Yeah. that's exactly life for an entire year, even now, you yeah. know, because now now in the grief, I'm thinking I just want to feel good. Like, I just want right. life to be easy. And I don't want to do anything I don't want to do. Yeah, Like when you think that way, we're kind of conditioned to judge ourselves. Like, well, are you being selfish? And like, why don't you care about someone else? Why can't you be there for someone else? What kind of sister are you? What kind of daughter are you? But really, no one deserves to have panic attacks every time after they talk to a family member, you know, And, and you can't help anyone if you yourself are not strong.
0: Yeah. So what did you end up doing about the panic attacks?
1: I was kind of dealing with, with it, you know, by avoiding triggers and trying to like make lifestyle changes. Go to bed on at a reasonable hour, try not to drink too much. Like I was trying to avoid every single thing that was setting it off. And it, it kind of worked in the sense that it was only happening like once a week or every other week. So I, I felt like, well, if I'm having more good days than bad days, this is you know, I must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. But as my dad got worse, I think it was when he lost his ability to speak and smile, it really gutted me and it. Because like our thing was always, you know, even though we had like an immigrant, you know, like an Asian immigrant dad and American child, we had this barrier and we we had this cultural barrier and language barrier. But like my way of connecting with him was always that I could make him laugh. So when when he stopped being able to laugh and smile, I, I really felt like he died then. As right. my dad got worse, the panic attacks got worse. I started thinking, do I need medication? Like, this is this is really hard. I, I started feeling like I missed who I used to be. Mm-hmm. I started feeling like I used to, you know, I used to go out running and everything overwhelms me. Right. You know, it's like every, this most simple things, it felt like too many steps. I spoke to a psychiatrist and she was like, how have you not been on medication? <laughs> like how, what she prescribed you know like a baby dose of Prozac it it became better but then then my dad passed away i started having flashbacks of his last 24 hours after he passed mm-hmm. and i couldn't get them out of my mind mm-hmm. and it took me a few weeks to figure out that this was probably PTSD i followed up with the psychiatrist and I, I said, you know, right. I know everyone's sad after their parents die, but this feels like it's, it's hard to even function. She upped the dose and she, she said, this, is, this does sound like PTSD. So, mm-hmm. you know, if we, if we increase the dosage, it should help. And it did, I think it became a really valuable thing for me to be able to talk to a psychiatrist, first even make that call. Cause like right. I, there was so much, there's so much stigma behind that especially from like an Asian culture a lot is rooted in like your ability to tolerate things Mm -hmm. and your ability to bounce back you know when your parents are immigrants my mom's a refugee from the Vietnam War there's a lot of emphasis on like how innately strong you are Mm -hmm. you know and how innately resilient you are I struggled so so much with even trying medication like I, I felt like it would be like admitting that i'm not strong Mm -hmm. you know and i'm so messed up i need medication my boyfriend actually said the most like poignant thing he said you know you you can't think about any of that the question you need to ask yourself is where do you want to be how do you want to be living and functioning right and then what do you need to do to get there and when he put it that way it was obvious like it was like well, I want to be happy and I want to be able to work out. I want to be able to like talk to people without feeling overwhelmed. Right. I don't want to be having panic attacks at night. You know, I want to sleep through the night. Yeah. And once he framed it like that, it's, I thought, you know, I deserve to feel that way. Yeah. Like, what, yeah. why, why am I punishing myself just to prove that I'm like strong and I don't need help? Like, I do need help. I'm not, right. I'm not doing so hot.
0: Thank you for being so honest about all of this. I know this is these are hard things to talk about, so I really appreciate it.
1: It, it, it is really hard. It really has to start with us, right? Like yeah. we have to be able to say, look, you can be a sunny personality. You can be kind and funny, but you can also have struggles and you can ask for help with that, you know, because it, it's going to really help you like live. And I think right. Right. that compounded with like the possibility that I might have a shorter life if I carry the same mutation as my dad, I kind of, at that point, that helped give me that push. Like, well, if I have 10 years left, if I have 20 years left, do I wanna spend them having panic attacks and freaking out and crying and like forcing myself to get through the day? Or do I wanna just like be able to be a good friend, be able to enjoy and laugh? I learned that, you know, you can't really predict how (laughs) you're gonna react to certain things in life. I I certainly wasn't anticipating to like increase my, the dosage of my medication after my dad died, but I, at that point it was just what was necessary. Yeah. And, and I, I can say like with complete confidence that like today I feel like the best version of myself, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like I can be a really good friend. You know, I can be a really good dog mom. I'm, you know, I'm kinder and there's, I can give more as a teacher Mm -hmm. because it's, I, I'm not battling so much angst and the, the, it, it's, it, there's like a lot of internal noise.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing that you still felt like you had to push through, even though you were, you're were going through really extraordinary circumstances. I mean, this is not just losing a parent. It's losing a parent to something very, very rare and very deadly.
1: Yeah. You know, that in itself can feel isolating. Yeah because at the beginning it was more isolating than now like now i'm I'm able to connect with just anyone who's lost a parent sure but at the beginning it was such a shock it felt really isolating to only have like two people to reach out to in the world you know i only knew two and then even over time i've reached out to more you know I've, i've i've watched documentaries and just decided to send these people emails like hey I saw you I saw you on 60 minutes or I saw you on this documentary or or another and listen like this runs in my family too and I know there are like only six of us in America so like hi (laughs) but you know I, I think like podcasts like yours helped me to reach out and own it and not be ashamed
0: so while you were going you know through this year with your father or maybe even before as you were starting to deal with your ptsd how did it affect your creativity and you know did did you play this year i know you've been teaching but sort of how did you stay connected with your creative self
1: I don't, I don't know if this is kosher for an artist to say, but I have only practiced a couple of times in the last year. I just, I I feel like for me, music is, it takes up a lot of brain power. So I I haven't felt like I've had a lot of mental space to focus, you know, on, Mm -hmm. on playing and making something sound the way I want it to sound. And I, I would say that goes hand in hand with, you know, reading. Like I always know it's a sign that I'm feeling overwhelmed if, I'm not practicing and I'm not, I'm not able to read like for pleasure. When my self care goes up and my mental health is in a good place, I am more motivated to practice or just play for fun. I haven't put any pressure on myself to practice. Yeah. And, and I haven't done that with any of my kids this year either because I, I felt like the last thing any of us need right now is more pressure.
0: Yeah.
1: There's just so much external pressure from everywhere. So that yeah. that sort of became a rule like i had parents calling me during the pandemic like you know my my daughter or my son they don't want to practice you know something's wrong with them or like are, are is something wrong with them or are they are they not liking it or are they not being are they being lazy you know is this okay like i'm so sorry and i i felt early on be, maybe because i was also so overwhelmed yeah i felt like well i don't want to practice right now right so I don't blame them right. and if, if piano can just be like a happy break in the week where they're excited to pick up that FaceTime call, they're excited to have some interaction, they're enjoying their playing, it's kind of like working out at the gym, right? right. Like if you're excited to go and work out with your trainer, great. For the kids, I think I found that they actually started voluntarily practicing more once the pressure was off sure because they didn't have other activities that they could go out and do and once there once it became like just this fun thing and it was a relief from the pandemic it was an escape from the pandemic they actually enjoyed practicing and they enjoyed being in charge of something right in charge Mm -hmm. of their own progress so I I kind of applied that same attitude to myself you know like if if you feel like playing you can play but if You know, if you don't feel like playing, you're not going to call yourself undisciplined, you know, or not a real pianist. You're not a real musician. Like, look at all the other musicians that are getting so much done right now. Like, I just thought, you know, like creativity flows best when you're happy. Music shouldn't be a chore. And that's some that's an attitude I've always had was, you know, if, if there are months I don't feel like playing, I don't like I'll go a couple of months without practicing and I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think that's very unkosher, because I, I want to feel joy when I'm doing it. As an adult, the way to keep joy for this activity is like you have to keep that that feeling when you were little, like the yeah. first time you just you discovered how to do something. And you're like, yes, like this is so cool. Like, you know, we, we kind of have to nurture that in ourselves. Th- there's this joy that comes with discovery. You know, the most joy I feel with making music is when I can do something I couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. So I play when I'm focused and when I can, you know, accomplish something like that. To me, like, I think practicing just to practice every day is, you know, life is short. Yeah. Your days are short. Like, if you're not enjoying it, they're just muscles. Like, you can build them back. You know, yeah. you take a couple of months off right. and when you need to, if you decide to sign on for a concert, you can you can build those muscles back up. But it's I for me it, it's helpful to Yeah. Take time off and refresh and regroup. And then every time I come back to it, it's like a new thing.
0: Did you find joy during this past year? Yeah, I think
1: definitely. I think that pre medication I would feel joy But also the things that were overwhelming me would take over. And, you know, it it was harder to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. So if I saw my friends, I would be happy in that moment. But, if you know, then I would get a text about my dad and a new symptom. And I I could just burst into tears and have a panic attack. So just it's harder to hold on to that. It's not like you can't feel happiness. Like, you know, I love my boyfriend. I love my dogs. You know, the kids are cute. They're making me laugh today. But it's just everything else is louder. Right. And once I started the medication, I could feel like so much more joy. Mm -hmm. It was like, oh, the kids are really cute. And like, I'm really happy to be teaching right now. I can definitely feel that. I have more space and to think clearly. Yeah. I have more space for the good thoughts. Yeah. And I have more space to help myself calm down when I am triggered. Like, right. it's not like you'll never get triggered again. No. You know, yeah. it's, it's not like you don't feel anxiety, but now it, it creeps in. But then there's space for this other voice to come in and say, like, it'll be fine. One of these huge events of your life is this car accident.
0: That happened when you were 18 um, that impacted your um, ability
1: to perform as well, which you've since recovered. So this is another this is another one of those experiences that I've never really spoken like publicly about because I, I was embarrassed about the sheer like heaviness or ugliness of it. So I was 18. The mm-hmm. accident happened the second week of college. My parents were separated. they were not in a good place hmm and I, um, I I came home that weekend it was Labor Day weekend I came home to, to hang out with my boyfriend who was still in high school um, you know he was a daredevil you know he was driving dangerous at a dangerous speed on a curvy road he thought that the car, like we were passing another car, and he thought that car was going to change lanes into him. So he he slammed on the brakes and swerved. The steering had broken in the car, mm. and it was just going, and it hit a tree. And I just remember things came to a stop, and I, I didn't even feel the pain of the impact because it was so strong. I felt that my elbow hit something, but it was so strong that I, I maybe it numbed it. And I looked down, it was like my own blood coming out of my elbow, just getting all over the car. I ended up in the ER. They gave me a shot in my elbow joint. And then they proceeded with tweezers to take out every little piece of pebble glass in my elbow. They just I could still remember them digging through tissue to find it. And I was just screaming, crying.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And they sent me home. Like they sent me home. I was home by 5 a.m there was no follow-up care really I certainly didn't know I would be traumatized there was no adult in my life at that point who could say like you know what is the extent of this injury yes how are you reacting to it like a semester off was not an option in my radar I went back to school like they just they dropped me back off at USC with a huge bandage around my arm and i was on my own back then as an 18 year old i just knew that i felt overwhelmed mm-hmm. and everything was making me cry i was scared i was scared of everything i was scared of being in a car i didn't even know how to get help like i just right. thought i'm being very emotional about, about this car accident i had to take a choir class for you know the large ensemble credit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that was probably my saving grace. Mm. I can't say that I was able to connect with my classmates that year, you know, just because there there was just so much chaos inside of me. I just remember the weekly rehearsals. We were doing a Mozart grand mass in C minor, you know, so it it had this pathos that kind of spoke to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I had never sung before and I'd never mm-hmm. been in a choir. I was always the pianist for the choir, Right. right? but it was kind of nice because there were so many people around me and there was just something about that that got me through each week. Those mm-hmm. nights that I left choir rehearsal were the some of the only nights I felt like, you know, life isn't so bad. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I feel good. Now thinking back, I feel a lot of compassion for that 18 year old and I, mm-hmm. oh God, you know, I, I wish there was some way I could have helped her more.
0: I feel like that is part of of the therapeutic process because in a way you you take that that child around with you for your whole life and mm-hmm. i feel like part of it is learning how to accept that that child didn't get what she needed and but that yeah. she's okay now
1: yeah and like paying attention to the inner child now when she starts to right you know when she starts to fuss a little bit right you know i think it it's made a world of difference to pay attention to her and give her what she needs, rather than like silencing her because then she starts screaming.
0: Right. Was choir also sort of the only way you could make music at the time because your
1: arm was injured? You know, for the first many months, I I was experiencing like numbness in my hands. Like no one was being very clear. Like I had doctors telling me, well, you hit it so hard in the impact, it's just going to take a little while for the feeling to come back. But then... It was like, well, maybe, you know, we we see some glass in your x ray. So we think your nerve got cut a little bit. So it takes two years for nerves to grow back. So just wait and see. I love piano. But honestly, I was so overwhelmed all the time. I didn't want to practice. I was just practicing enough to get by, like, poorly in lessons. My teacher assigned some left hand pieces. Um for me, and I, I I enjoyed those a lot, actually, like mm-hmm. th- those made me feel a little bit more empowered. A lot of doctors just said, like neuropathy is normal when you have a nerve injury, and like if you can still play, just be grateful for that. Um, and mm-hmm. it wasn't until 2009 i I saw a doctor and he said, You have glass in your arm, like you need to take that out." And I said, no, no, like everyone else told me glass gets encapsulated in scar tissue and it just doesn't move. So like, you're fine. And he was like, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my life. Like, what if someone slams into you and it it moves? I hadn't grown to this point where I knew how to look after myself and that I could advocate for myself. And I really thought, well, that's what all the doctors told me. And you know, as an Asian kid, You know, you're taught that, like, if someone tells you how things are, like, you just you you follow directions and you say, "Okay, thank you. And you don't I wasn't raised to, like, question things that much. He felt so strongly about this. And he was not covered by my insurance. He actually did the whole surgery for free. He was just like, you need to get that glass out now. Wow. I was not thinking I was going to be a pianist. Mm -hmm. I was thinking. I want to be. So what ended up happening was I got one gig at a time, like one chamber music concert, you know, and I found that it really made life better to have something to practice for, just knowing it was in a few months, that was what I put all my mind to. And it was kind of an escape, right? Like it was an escape from this, like just the pain and the um, uncertainty I only had to prove to myself that, like, even though it hurts, even though I have like tingling or, you know, stabbing pain. If I can still play this piece, though, like that's a win. And so I, I had all these really small wins over several years and it made me feel good about myself. It kind of empowered me, you know, where I didn't feel like I was this weak, over emotional person. Mm-hmm. I felt like I am doing something that like people said I couldn't do. I played with all these amazing musicians. Everything's going well, right? right. My studio is, like, blooming. It's, it's growing. It's like, I know I'm good at all this stuff, and I have great friends. I have, like, this magical life, but, like, it felt like there was, like, this monster that was just living inside of me that was, you know, every now and then would remind me like hey i'm still here and i didn't know what to do with it in retrospect i can see how music really saved me and I, I was using it to to you know keep afloat and to give myself energy and to give you know remind myself of my strength and my ability to get through like the hard times but i i do feel like who i am today like i don't need to use music for that mhm I feel like music is this beautiful thing and I I love it but I I don't seek validation from x y and z happening in my career next like I'm I'm very okay with what I've done so far I've proved enough to myself I don't feel like I I need to prove more mm-hmm. and wherever music takes me I think I would only engage if it brings me joy my only objective this year is to you know, feel better and, yeah. and gets to a really healthy routine yeah. and enjoy life. And then the rest, I think will sort itself out.
0: That is such a healthy mindset. It takes a lot of work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Cause it, it takes dealing with that monster inside.
1: Mm-hmm. We all have a version of it. Yeah. And I think that that monster, I I have come to identify her as the very angry, traumatized child who is screaming in pain. Yeah. You know, and I I was taught to just tell her to shut up. Yeah. You know, get on with your life. And, And now I find that, you know, as soon as you start hearing her. If you turn your attention inward and say, like, okay. Like, why are you feeling like this? And I feel like feeling seen and felt is really the antidote to any of the bad feelings. Like, they will yes. just kind of go away on their own.
0: You've touched on this a little bit, but but do you feel like there is stigma, particularly within the Asian community, around mental health and sort of how do you see that conversation shifting
1: given the news? I think there is. I would say it's a combination of cultural cultural norms, there's a lot of emphasis on tolerance, being able to take pain, being able to sit with it. With our parents, I think it's a combination of the values they were taught in Asia. But also, there's got to be some inter like generational trauma going on, you know, the, the skills it took for our parents to survive and get over here, probably did not allow for a lot of feeling your feelings. and a lot of processing you know you get here you've got kids to feed you got to figure it out you know you don't have space to like cry and you don't have space to break down so this was kind of the way a lot of us were taught was to just stuff your feelings you know the same way our parents did and you know that can be useful right like there are some scenarios where you do have to get it together and compartmentalize and for at least a few hours but I think that like stuffing it for years right. and just trying to erase it and never dealing with it is that you know that's another can of worms that I think right. people in my generation are dealing with now. I would say that people that are closer to traditional Asian culture I don't think are very open to therapy I think I can safely say that and if if I'm wrong I hope somebody you know reaches out and corrects me but I, I would say that, the more americanized you are the more open you are to therapy but in in the more traditional circles or in any minority i feel like it is it is seen as like a white people thing okay and i don't mean that you know offensively i think it is an american thing it is like oh you know you need to go to you need to hire someone to listen to you talk about your problems these are just kind of the unkind attitudes towards therapy you can't you can't figure it out on your own you know and a lot of this comes from having survived some really gnarly things when your mother survived two weeks on the boat from Vietnam to Hong Kong you know when she survived months in a communist jail because you know she she tried to escape once before the time she was successful and the smuggler didn't show up in their hiding spot, so the soldiers arrested her. You know, when, when you have a mother who has gone through that, there's nothing you can go through in your life in America that will be as bad as when mommy was on the boat. Right. Like, and you know, she didn't mean to inflict harm, of course, you know, I think she saw it as I'm trying to make you strong, I want you to be strong like me. But literally, I would be crying over a breakup. Mm-hmm. And I would say, mommy, I just really need you to like hug me right now. And she would hug me, but she would also say, don't cry. Did mommy cry when she was on the boat for two weeks and almost died? No, mommy didn't cry because of that. Why are you crying now? And you know, that I think that ended up teaching me that my pain was not valid. And I I think that is something that was inadvertently taught. I don't think this is particularly an Asian thing. No. I think yeah. when, I think it could, it. I don't even think it's limited to parent and child. I think we all have to learn that we don't need to compare our traumas and we don't need to compare our suffering. Right. And that something that feels big to someone else that doesn't feel as big to you, it still feels big to them. Right. I see a lot of comparing and that, that gets us nowhere. That just right. leads to shame and right. judgment which leads to isolation, you know, because when someone feels like what they're going through isn't as bad, they don't, they tend not to speak up. Like, I, I've had so many friends in, over the last year, like, say, what I'm going through is nowhere as bad as what you're going through. So, like, you know, I I shouldn't complain. But I would say you can complain. Yeah. It's still hard what you're going through. I would imagine it,
0: help, it makes you feel good to be able to provide comfort to your friends. Yeah.
1: I I felt like you know, you really, you don't need to compare. There's no one's suffering has to have a score. I hope that the pandemic has opened up discussion and acceptance, you know, of asking for help when you need it. You know, this is not the time to push yourself to just tough it out. How,
0: how has um, this sort of escalation of anti-Asian violence affected your mental health or has it affected your mental health? Has there been any kind of shift as things have escalated?
1: Yeah. So I think prior to the shootings, I was already feeling kind of disgusted. Just you take the race out of it. Like what kind of person attacks the elderly? But I felt extra angry because you know, every every elderly person you see being attacked, every picture reminds you of your own relatives, right? Right. It can't not. Right. So then you picture this happening to your grandmas, your grandpa, to your mom, your uncles, you know, your dad. And it's really infuriating because, you know, especially when you think about like them, how hard they've worked to come over for us. That's the nerve that it strikes is like we've all seen our parents struggle for so many years already. Right. And, you know, it's not an Asian culture to complain. I, I read on Twitter today that there, there may be three to four times the amount of attacks. It's just that some Asians don't want to report it and they don't want to, you know, make it known. Mm-hmm. so that's heartbreaking my initial reaction was infuriation for like you know our elders when it was just attacks i felt like it was easier to respond with anger than vulnerability you yeah. know it's easier to talk a lot of shit about how like if someone attacks me i i hope i you know claw their eyes out because you know that that kind of helps you feel stronger Mm-hmm. But um, with these shootings, it's, you know, the pretense of being tough was stripped away. This is, this was a new, like this week was tough. I did feel disturbed and I I felt upset that, you know, this is one of the first times I thought about, wow, it's really kind of unfortunate that i can't just like put on a different skin until this blows over but you know that's a really terrible place to be like it's really terrible to catch yourself thinking that and and so that that was that's been tough how do you comfort yourself with
0: those feelings what do you say to child cindy
1: in there Who's like, well, I'm not I, going yeah. outside. <laughs> right? Like there there was definitely, there were a lot of familiar feelings. The feelings right. of feeling unsafe. Right. You know, feelings of being at risk. Right. You know, and, and a lot of that can make you feel more sensitive than usual. I just had to acknowledge it. I said, right. you know, the shootings were really triggering. And I'm, I'm feeling a little more vulnerable than usual. Mm-hmm. And... This probably means I, I need a little more space to myself. Right. You know, I need space for my, to process my thoughts. We deserve to be doing some nice things for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Like uh, on Friday, I did a home spa night. I, did oh. <laughs> I think people who are struggling or who have dealt with really, really hard struggles, they're frequently labeled as strong. You're so strong, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then there, there's this internal pressure to live up to that. I've been called strong ever since I was little, and I felt so much pressure on myself to live up to that because other people found inspiration from it, and I didn't want to let them down. Mm -hmm. And these days, I'm doing much better with that. These days, I'm okay saying, hey, you know, I think it's important to just state for the record that this week was triggering, Mm -hmm. and I'm feeling really sensitive today yeah, you know that doesn't make you a weak person. It mean it makes you someone who knows your, yourself. Yes, and that is a strength, right. and you're you're respecting yourself, yes. and you're respecting whatever's going on inside. Yes. and you're giving yourself what you need to feel safe. And that that is what I said yesterday is i I am not feeling very centered inside about sure. this. You know, unfortunately I think more things will happen in the news and maybe we'll get distracted by this or we'll become numb to it. But it is very disheartening to know, to be reminded that there are people like this among us.
0: I think the other point that you're raising, which is really important, is that it's really about what you need in this moment. And what you need in this moment might be different next week or next month. And you know, when you have PTSD or when you've had some kind of trauma, a secondary trauma just makes it bigger, and so you do get this is my understanding of it mm-hmm. is that the traumas kind of compound upon one another, and so they're very well, maybe people who are not concerned about going outside right now because of the mathematical probability and all of that. But if it feels unsafe to you mm-hmm. and you want to order in, right? That's great. Like, and it also, you won't necessarily feel
1: that way always. I think so. I think it's, I totally agree that this pandemic is also has forced us. Well, for me, it was the pandemic and not knowing if, if I carry the same mutation as my dad. Right. That really forced me to live in the present moment. And yes. I, I know that it, it, if, if I were not myself, I would think that is just such a you know hallmark thing to say and it's easier said than done. But when, you know, when, when you've had panic attacks about dying and you really don't know if you have it, you don't know if it's going to hit you. You don't know if you could get COVID tomorrow. Right. Right. Like I, I think of all these things and I it helps bring me back to the present moment and I I do think well, you know, right now I'm having a lovely conversation with Julia. You know, I'm in my living room, I'm in front of my Christmas tree. This is pretty fun. <laughs> and you know, right now I feel okay. Yeah. And so that's important to hold on to. Right. Just as if tonight if there's another attack and I feel at risk, tonight I can say like, you know, I don't feel like socializing. Right, because um, I don't feel safe right now. I just, I feel very bothered. And right. and I, I think it's just like, like you said, it's important to listen to ourselves in every moment.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and, and it doesn't make us self-indulgent. I think it can be done in a way that's very respectful of ourselves and respectful of others. You know, yes. we're not asking for everyone to change their plans for our every whim and fancy. Right. I think listening to ourselves is kind of like the first step that we can take to becoming the best versions of ourselves you know the, the kind of the most empowering thing empowering thing we can do in life is to make life a bit easier for other people so i i definitely encourage just as you know i saw your podcast and i reached out to you if you know if there's anyone who's been through anything similar and this this really touched anyone like I would encourage I would encourage people to reach out like and not necessarily to me it could be to me but to anyone if if yeah. if anything you've seen recently reminds you of any struggle or you know that you have gone through or you are going through right now I I think the antidote to a lot of suffering is like helping yourself be seen
0: yes I agree well if people People want to hear your performances, learn more about your piano studio, sign up for piano lessons.
1: Um, (laughs) How can they find you? Um, I have two websites. I have one for me as a pianist. It's cindylam.com. And I have one for my studio, which is Uh studio.cindylam.com. So, and I have Instagrams for both. So, you know, come find me. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. Thank you, Julia. This was so lovely. I'm so inspired by
0: Cindy's resilience, her vulnerability, her focus on the present, and that she has redefined and really discovered what strength means to her. It can be hard as a musician to step away from your practice, but Cindy has a really beautiful reminder that our health, whether it be physical or mental or spiritual, really does come first. So thank you to Cindy for sharing her story with us, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Loose Leaf Notebook. I'm Julia Adolph, and the music you are hearing is my orchestral work, Dark Sand Sifting Light, performed by the New York Philharmonic with Alan Gilbert conducting. If you'd like to hear some more of my music, you can visit my website at juliaadolph.com, or my YouTube channel, which also has video versions of all of these podcasts. Thanks again!